The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act Moral Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Eric Herzenovskaya. We also have a special co-host, Dr. Nora Toronto. Hey guys, how are you doing? On tonight's episode, we'll discuss physician mental health with Dr. Elizabeth Poorman. You probably know Dr. Nora Toronto from our parent show, The Curbsiders. Dr. Toronto also served as editor-in-chief of The Digest, a roundup of high-impact journal articles that get sent out twice a month from The Curbsiders. Before we start our conversation, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Elizabeth Foreman, tonight. We cover the challenges of mental health and medicine, how to identify and support struggling trainees, our colleagues, ourselves, thinking about licensing questions and the progress that has been made on this front, and the exciting and innovative changes that are happening at training programs across the country. So to give a little bit of a background about Dr. Poorman, she's an internist in addiction and primary care, now back in her hometown of Chicago at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She does mobile outreach and treats substance use disorders in various clinics, including a van-based clinic on the West Side. She also speaks and writes nationally around physician mental health and is an advocate for reducing licensing stigma. We had a really great conversation with her today. A reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Well, Dr. Foreman, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Are you okay if we call you Elizabeth today? Yes. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, we'd like to start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. And um, you have been a guest on a prior Curbsiders episode, but just to remind our listeners, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Uh, sure. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I'm an internal medicine trained doctor, and I also did a, a fellowship in addiction medicine. Um, and that's a a big passion of mine. Um, and I have a job now kind of split uh, between different places in Chicago where um, I can uh, support people uh, with substance use disorders or people who use substances um, and areas that have been particularly affected by the overdose crisis. Awesome, Elizabeth. I love meeting fellow addiction medicine-minded people. Um, so that's wonderful. Can you maybe share a book or a movie or even a show uh, that you recently watched and enjoyed? Yeah. Well, I uh, I love television. <laughs> so I recently watched with a friend Ms. Marvel, um, which is on Disney+. Plus. I am a huge fan of the comic books. One of the actually in residency, I found it really difficult to have enough attention to get through books. So I started reading comic books in residency, and Ms. Marvel uh, really spoke to me. You know, obviously, it's not uh, the traditional hero that we see. It's a young girl, um, a young girl from Pakistani origin, um, and it was just really cool to you know, read about that. And I thought the the specificity of the depiction was really lovely. And I think the show might even be better because they just bring in so many people who have that, who share that background to, you know, really uh, make a really gorgeous show. Um, and visually, I feel like it, it's the first thing I've watched that really captures the feeling of like reading a comic book. Have you uh, followed Shirley Whirl, MD on Instagram or more broadly? Oh um, yeah, she she's amazing. I went to medical school with her, and so I kind of have known her since since she was starting to do these beautiful medical comics. Um, and she actually is coming out with a book this month, uh, like today or tomorrow. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, but amazing. I'm very excited about it. 
Yeah, I um, uh, I I'm, I love her comics, um, and then uh, Grace Sparrow's comics. Um, so I really, um, I wish that I had some artistic talent. I don't, I but I can be an appreciator. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. To change the topic a little bit, um, we always love to hear about our uh, our experts' uh, stories and comings up in medicine. What is your kind of favorite failure or the failure that you look back on um, kind of for the lessons that you learned? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to say. I mean, I feel like I I fail every day in terms of, you know, the things that you want to do for people and you can't necessarily, um, especially when you're working with people that have a lot of challenges. But I think um, that's an ongoing process to sort of let go the idea of fixing things. Um, I think that's going to be important to this conversation as well. And I think the the best feedback I actually got on on this was from a uh, nurse in the ICU. I came in and I had a cold, you know, back in the day we were uh, expected to come to work sick always without thinking of the consequences. And uh, I really was uh, too sick to be at work. Um, and the nurse said to me, you know, you, you need to go home. You know, we appreciate you when you're here, but we don't really think about you when you're gone. And the ICU isn't going to collapse because you're not here. So I really um, appreciated that and, and, and try to remember that because I think a, a kind of toxic presenteeism um, is still very much part of um, medical profession, uh, particularly for doctors. Elizabeth, I feel so seen because my dad used to tell me all the time, like, you're not irreplaceable. Like, I know your name is Ereb <laughs> and it's in irreplaceable, but you're like, you are not the, like this essential. I know like essential workers, there's a lot of meaning behind that. But in residency, I was like, oh my God, what? I'm not essential. Like, I'm not irreplaceable. And it took a lot to really let that sink in and be like, yeah, if you're ill, maybe and you can't be vertical, maybe it's time to be horizontal for a little bit, you know, and just kind of really let that sink in and not not worry about the, I don't know, self-induced implications of that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's hard when you're around people encouraging you to come to the hospital when you're sick or that have maybe made the schedule in such a way that there is going to be a lot of delays in care um, if you don't show up. It really shouldn't rely on such few people that we can't be human beings. Yeah, I'm experiencing a little of this right now. My uh the training program that I'm affiliated with has the medical students make up their sick days after the fact. Oh my gosh. And it's horrible. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, no. So, so like, uh, it's cutting into this medical student's vacation. And I feel like it just, just, uh, uh, kind of continues this, this lesson that you're, you're trained, you're ingrained with in medical school and even earlier, probably, um, that you are, you need to be there. And that you are the continuity, and you are you are the person, the only person who can can be uh, doing these roles and fulfilling these roles, even though that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, I think uh, it's too common, and it sort of touches on something that it's very hard to be a spokesperson for this. To be honest with you guys, it can be very mentally draining and emotionally draining because I do not think that a lot of the ways that training and um, schooling and practice are set up are okay. And I guess I sort of make peace with it the same way I make peace with the way that we treat patients is also not okay a lot of the times, um, especially in America, the differential access that people have, the way that, uh, you know, discrimination plays out. You know, you feel like working in these systems, you know, you are the face of a system that is harming people. And uh, that causes, you know, if we can get into more of that, it causes a lot of moral injury to be the face of that system, you know, and then, so then like being the face of like seeking care in residency or, or, or medical school, um, you know, it's just tough because, you know, on the one hand, I know that it's the structure of the training and the practice that causes so many of us to become ill, in addition to the fact that this is just a hard job and you're never going to totally get away from the fact that it's really hard to take care of people who are in crisis and, and who are sick and who are dying. But a lot of the things are are sort of self-inflicted within our system. So I want to, you know, I'm always trying to strike a balance between making people feel empowered to take care of themselves, but also acknowledging that um, some of those structures are are really not okay. Well, I appreciate you saying that and, and bringing your expertise to us today because I think, you know, hopefully there is 
a lot that we can all work towards together to make things better and make our system better and our training better and just our whole experience working in health professions better. So I'm glad that we can have this conversation today. Should we, um, before we dive deeper into that, um, Ira or Nora, do you have picks of the week that you wanted to share? Um, I guess on the TV train, I am also a huge, huge watcher of TV. Um, and I just finished Ozark, which I'm not sure any of you guys yes. have watched, but I like, I hadn't watched it for the longest time. And then, uh, I, I had a little bit of time off from the hospital. And so I, I just watched all of it and, uh, wow, it's a great show, really dark, but, uh, but excellent. So I, I highly recommend. Yeah, one of my best friends was like, "Do you want to watch a dark show about a financial person?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> but, but then I watched a little bit, and I was like, "Well, okay, maybe." <laughs> yeah, and it's about a part of the world that I really know very little about, and and is actually quite beautiful and and uh, very interesting. So, so I uh, I actually really appreciated that piece. Well, uh, Nora, I love that, and I would say on a totally different note, um, but somewhat related to our episode today. My pick of the week is um, Esther Perel's uh, podcast, Where Should We Begin? I'm kind of obsessed with her also because she's a, a, some affiliation with UCSF, but also just because listening to her voice is just so calming and she just kind of like both lulls me and kind of is very thought provoking. It's a strange dynamic to hold those two things at the same time, but her podcast uh, episodes are super short and kind of just really dive into conversations about relationships, around grief, around uh, kind of moving forward and figuring out like your own just kind of interrelational capabilities, I would say, based on your past. And so I've just been really like blown away by her episodes. And uh, she's an incredible, I think, Belgian uh, couples therapist. Um, and so if anybody wants to start. And there's also a game. She has a game that has like cards on it, also called Where Should We Begin? And it's all about, uh, it's a board game basically to like dive deeper into getting to know people and connection and um, just kind of relational dynamics. So super interesting. I don't know, Molly, if you have one. I love her podcast. Yeah, she's so cool, right? (laughs) Her her episodes about the pandemic, I thought were really fascinating how dynamics had changed between couples. And we start, I think a lot of us saw that play out, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, she's really encouraging, too. So she's like, those dynamics happened. And here are ways to, like, introduce some playfulness, some fun, like, just really, I don't know, encouraging, too. Right. Well, I'll, I'll pass for this week, um, just so we can jump into the topic here. And we do want to acknowledge that talking about mental health is a sensitive topic. And so if this is triggering for anyone listening, the National Suicide Hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. Moreover, if anyone needs or wants guidance on available resources, Dr. Elizabeth Porman has made herself available via email at drporman at gmail.com, or you can reach out to any of us on Twitter which we'll post our Twitter handles on the show notes. We're happy to talk and see that you get the support that you need. Nora, could you start us off with a case, please? Absolutely. So we'll dive into this case from Cashlack Memorial. You work as an assistant program director at an academic internal medicine program at a city hospital. Your hospital has been hit pretty hard by COVID the last few years, and residents have been working longer hours, more frequent calls for Jeopardy, as well as uh, just longer uh, blocks and, and more shifts overall, carrying more patients than prior with census issues. And so you're currently on service with some of the residents, and you notice that one of the interns, who's now six months into the year, is a little bit less jovial than she was the last time you worked on service. She still performs her job well. You're not worried about her care of patients, um, but she's much more withdrawn and quiet than she used to be and and than when you last worked with her and kind of interacted with her. So you ask her about how the year has been going, and she mentions how tired she is that day and how she feels quite burned out. And so just just to start with some definitions, could you remind us kind of what the difference is between burnout and depression? And is there a spectrum um, or is is there another entity that we should be trying to include in the picture? Yeah, well, first of all, I would just, you know, I appreciate you making, you know, mentioning COVID surges, which, you know, hopefully will continue to you know, be in a better place with that, because I think it's really important to acknowledge that the residents currently are experiencing something that none of us experienced when we were in residency. And I think 
I'm guessing it can feel kind of scary to admit that because it might mean, you know, that you're not able to guide them in the way that you would want to. Um, It can be a little overwhelming, but I find when we're dismissive of how different this time is, um, that's a really hurtful thing for, um, you know, current residents and current students. Um, So, you know, definitely the background of COVID has accelerated things and changed a lot of things. Um, You know, when somebody tells me that they're burned out, so burnout is a, you know, by definition is an occupational phenomenon. So it's chronic exhaustion and sense of disconnection um, from your work because you have over and over again experienced um, a feeling of helplessness and not being listened to or valued. So it's a coping mechanism for that environment. And uh, it it can look sort of like depression, um, but I think it's it is distinct. But I I do worry always when people tell me that they're burned out who are clinicians because I I think it's uh, a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and I think of it as a term that conceals rather than reveals. Um, in that I I know less about what she means when she says burned out uh, than more. I don't know if she's using that to say, you know, she had a particularly tough week. I don't know if she's using that to, you know, gently tell me that she is depressed or um, or that she's, you know, very depressed. So a lot of times when I'm seeing clinicians in practice, you know, we'll do the PHQ-9 together. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about, you know, how they're doing. And it's very clear that they have severe depression. Um, and they will say, yeah, I guess I am a little burned out. Um, so I think it's become a kind of okay way to talk about that. So I, um, I would just like let your ears perk up a little bit. I do also want to say that, you know, when you're working with somebody and you're worried about them, I think it is good to check in on them. But I think, you know, your previous guest, uh, Dr. Chantal Young from Keck, um, talked about how this can be perceived as very loving and supportive, or it can be perceived as um, incredibly intrusive and threatening, depending on your relationship with that person, the setting that you're asking in, um, and, you know, how that person feels about disclosing at that time. So I would hope that we're having this conversation, you know, not in front of other people, not right before we have to round or see a lot of patients, um, you know, in case this does become emotional, um, and that, you know, I've done some work to show this individual that I care about her before um, I ask her this question. Because, you know, sometimes you don't know how somebody in a position of authority is going to react when you are vulnerable and honest with them. Elizabeth, wow, I think that's so helpful. I haven't heard that kind of description of burnout being something that's a way to conceal as opposed to reveal. And so I think that's really like eye-opening. Um especially because for a lot of us, this topic is is both challenging and really kind of can leave us feeling hopeless and just uh, where do we go from here? Um, and I would say, I'm, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I, many people have felt similarly burned out and also at other times depressed. And I just wonder, um, you know, how can we talk about this conversation and, you know, we're having one conversation on this podcast, but kind of the meta conversation about this um, with a sense of hope or maybe optimism or kind of, yeah, how do we, how do we, how do we have this conversation? And maybe we'll even turn back to the case. Like, how do you talk about this with um, this intern in a loving and supportive and kind of relationship focused way? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I, um, I, I am particularly struck right now by the sense of anger um, that I'm feeling from current trainees. Um, and I think it's partially because, you know, cultural expectations of work are changing. There's a lot of pushback to the idea that you're always going to show up, that you're going to miss, you know, every single friend's wedding, that you're going to, you know, not be able to see your friends and family for three to seven to nine years. Um, I think that, um, younger people are not really going to accept that. Um, and that, so we're, I think we're in a position, uh, we're in a period of transition right now. 
where they're pushing back on that, but our systems aren't really set up to support a more humane uh, work-life balance. But I think it is ultimately a good thing. With this individual, when people are, you know, in crisis um, or, you know, potentially in crisis, you know, I, I can speak to what was helpful for me. And then I can tell you about a couple of residency programs where I th- it seemed like this was being really well modeled and a lot of feedback that I got from uh, residents when I came to, you know, sort of help them evaluate their wellness programs. It did seem to be working for a, uh, a large number of people. For me, you know, when, when people really wanted to fix what was going on, uh, that caused a lot of harm for me. And especially if the fixing took the form of telling me that I shouldn't feel this way, which unfortunately it did um, happen uh, like that sometimes. But when people were able to make time to meet with me outside of work um, and validate what I was experiencing like, wow, it is, it does seem like that person is being really tough on you or, um, yeah, this is really hard. And then couple that with their own experience and their willingness to be vulnerable with me and say, you know, residency was hard for me in this particular way. And, um, it took me some time to get help. Um, and this is what that looked like for me. You know, would it be okay if I, you know, try to help connect you? You know, that kind of support was invaluable to me. So then, you know, when I, when I've been to residencies, for the most part, there's a lot of challenges and people are really afraid to access care. You know, even if some sort of employee assistance program is set up. I think a lot of residents are mistrustful of that. They think that it's a way to, you know, keep tabs on them. And I, I can't say that in, in every case, it's, there aren't concerns about how that information is going to be used. But when it, it has seemed to work well is when um, people in positions of power are early on very vulnerable with residents themselves and say, you know, I experienced major depression or I experienced something else and um, I got therapy and I got medication. And I know a lot of us are afraid to do that, but, you know, it was really important for me. And I think that that kind of role modeling is is a really important first step and then making help uh, easily accessible to people in a way that doesn't require a lot of activation energy um, and where it's like very clear that their privacy is going to be protected is really important as well. I, I could imagine that that the approach as a colleague or as a co-resident would be very different than the approach as an educator kind of who's in a role uh, that has potentially some evaluation component. Do you have any specific pearls about how to approach that? And and I know we we had a great episode just a couple of months ago about this. So so um, there may be some from that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, it's good to think about the different ways to, you know, support people depending on your relationship to them and thinking about those power dynamics before you approach somebody. So, you know, if they're a colleague or co-resident or, you know, something like that, I, I do think, again, making the time outside of work is important. I know that can be challenging, but um, you want to give people the space to respond. You know, it's really, you know, I used to say like one of the easiest ways to make a resident cry was to like see them at 630 in the morning or whenever it is that they come in and say, how are you doing? And then, you know, right before they have to go see a bunch of patients. Um, I think I just cried not, inside, Elizabeth. I think I knew exactly <laughs> how you feel <laughs> or how that resident may feel. Yep. <laughs> Startled yeah. eyes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but Just the dew, just glasses and you're yep. like, it's coming. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Elizabeth, go for it. Yeah. No, but I think that's that's helpful, right, to like, you know, you you think like, wow, I just was trying to trying to reach out to them and they really <laughs> didn't appreciate that. But if you like, you feel how threatening that can be, right? Um, so, you know, I think when you're worried about somebody, having that relationship in mind is good. Um, and then having, you know, thinking about the setting in which you're going to reach out to them. You don't always have to have the answer, right? You don't need to know, like, where's the best place for them to seek help? You know, how are you going to react in a crisis? But if you are in a period where you have some time to think through that and, and seek out what are the resources available, you know, when somebody's not in crisis and you're just like starting residency or, 
you know, you're starting medical school, I think it is important to, to know, right? Because then when somebody is in crisis, you can say, you know, like, can I help you connect to these? Uh, can I help you connect to these resources? Can, uh, you know, if you're, you know, if there's a, an acute safety issue, then you've thought through, like, how do we get you to a place where you're not going to be seeing people that you work with? Or, you know, maybe I'll go with you or whatever, you know, because that that's I've had a lot of people that I've talked to have been through that as well, going to their own emergency room when they had a mental health crisis. Um, and it's something that we don't always think through, but because the prevalence of mental illness is what it is um, in uh, medicine, that's not an uncommon scenario. So that's, you know, that's for colleagues. And then for people that you're overseeing, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank with you that I'm, I'm for the first time working like more regularly with residents and I am finding it very challenging to, you know, be supportive, but also be thoughtful about boundaries. And um, I'm still, I'm still kind of processing, you know, what, what does that look like? And it's a little bit unique for me because it's work has always been a big part of my identity, but I've always kind of been an outside person doing that. So I'm still, you know, trying to figure that out. I think on a systems level, I'm trying to advocate and funnel the feedback from the residents that they may not feel empowered to give to the administration. Um, and then on an individual resident level, I'm just trying to model that vulnerability and make time to just meet with people kind of one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, get to know them as a person so that I have some sense of their baseline and um, I'm really communicating to them as much as I can that I do care about them as individuals and not just people, you know, coming in to do work. And what kinds of things might you see in a learner or a colleague that make you concerned? Is performance impairment something that we see as an early sign of burnout or depression, or are there other more subtle signs that we may see sooner? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking this question because I think this is one of the most common misconceptions about um, how this manifests is that everything's going to be okay until it starts to impair your work. And I think that's, that's sort of part of the dehumanization of us as uh, people who are providing a service and not people. So I work with an, another uh, colleague who is a big advocate at Cambridge Health Alliance for improving access to care. And he had a big practice of seeing clinicians who were either self-referred or were mandated to, to come and see him. And he said that on average, they had a diagnosable mental health condition for seven years before they sought care. And I think uh, hopefully that that is coming down a little bit as people are getting more comfortable with mental health. But I don't think that that's an uncommon thing. And particularly that people have kind of traumatic experiences of seeking care or of um, their vulnerability being used against them at some point, you know, people are going to be reluctant uh, to do that. So definitely by the time it's affecting their work, I would say things are pretty severe. Um, and uh, there does need to be a thoughtful response. I would hope that we can proactively intervene um, and provide, you know, some kind of uh, support uh, for people before that that would happen. But it's not just affecting the work that, um, you know, people that I worry about, you know, a lot of people who die by suicide in practice, you know, the response afterwards is, oh, my God, we had no idea. They were doing so well. They never asked for help. They, you know, loved what they did. Um, and I think that can be another way that it can look, you know, when somebody is really in a lot of distress and they will not engage at all with how they're, you know, questions about how they are, or they'll just kind of brush things off. You know, sometimes those people are in a lot of trouble. Um, and then irritability, a lot of irritability and um, withdrawing and sort of escalating conflict is another way that I've seen distress uh, to manifest itself. Yeah, I uh, in medical school, I lost an attending that I worked very closely with to suicide. And the response over and over was we had no idea he was such a kind of happy go lucky person to work with and friend and colleague and attending. Um, so I do wonder, are there ways to identify folks who are at higher risk in that category who may not show it at all kind of when you're working with them? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, part of this, like to pull back part of this is that fix it mindset, right, that we really want to 
it's such a terrible thing to lose somebody. And I'm so sorry that that happens to you, Nora, too, and to your colleagues. Um, it sounds like that person was really important to the community. And, you know, that's it's a grief that, you know, you have to carry. And I, I don't I don't know if we're going to be able to identify everybody before something happens. I mean, suicide is very complicated for us in, in practice as well. And it's even more complicated for us, you know, when we're dealing with colleagues and we have these more complex relationships. Um, I do think that, you know, if you see somebody is struggling at work um, uh, in any way, or if they're, you know, struggling with their interpersonal relationships, or there's been a big change, again, making that time to check in with them in a way that's not threatening and thinking through like, how would you, how would you respond in a crisis is important. Sometimes people make a lot of jokes about how like, oh, well, you know, it's like, I was so tired, I thought I might pull my car over and get in a car accident, you know, so I wouldn't have to come into work. I've heard people make that joke a lot for whatever reason as as like a, you know, I guess, I guess some sort of way of, of, of confessing with but with the layer of humor to, to protect them. I think we may not be able to identify everybody, but if we change the culture such that people didn't feel so much fear of seeking care, then maybe that would help. And especially if not only they didn't feel fear, but we thought of this as an important part of our professional lives to actively seek care and at different points, like process the traumatic things that are part of our job, um, then I'm hoping that a a lot more um, suicide could potentially be prevented. And do you have some data around kind of the prevalence of mental health among trainees or or physicians? Yeah. So um, we see that when we um, poll medical students, about one in four of them currently uh, report depression. This is pre-pandemic data. It was published in 2016. So um, certainly it, it has gotten worse since that time. And about 10% said that they had contemplated suicide within the last year. So, you know, pretty high, but very few of them, I think one in six said that they had actually sought care. Um, and the most common reason was they were afraid that this was going to negatively impact their career. Um, so I think that that's still an ongoing issue. The highest prevalence seems to be an intern year. So about 40% of um, interns experience a major depressive episode in that first year. Again, pre-pandemic. So I'm, I'm guessing it's higher now as we don't have the you know normal social supports. And we do see that there's been worsening of burnout and depression symptoms um, in practice. And then about one in eight to one in five attendings self-report that they're currently depressed. Um, and unclear because I know that a lot of people that I talk to, you know, will tell me that they've never experienced depression. And then by the end of the conversation, they'll say, you know what, actually, I think I am <laughs> depressed. Um, so I, that's the effect I have on people, I guess. But I, I think, you know, we also don't, um, we're not always so in tune with our ourselves and our emotional lives or even our physical well-being either. So, you know, just to give you some 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 context of how common this is. I was going to say those those numbers are just, you know, shocking and feel very real. I mean, based on on my experiences of of making it through training and continuing to work with learners. Um and I just I think kind of bringing it back to the current situation with COVID-19. I mean, I I just really feel for our current learners just how disconnected they are. And I think, you know, I, I think back to my training and the only thing that made me get through those long holiday weekends where you're the only person at work that you know, and, you know, it's uh, is being there with your colleagues and sharing meals and sharing support of each other. And um, we've been very strict in San Francisco. And so for a year or more, our residents weren't allowed to have events together, weren't allowed to eat together. You know, the new interns found it hard to connect with others. And I just wonder kind of what's how are you seeing things currently with the COVID pandemic and in terms of mental health and, and learners? And do we have any data around anything that's going on currently? Um, there was a meta-analysis that showed that um, half of healthcare workers reported worsening depression symptoms. So, you know, we think, you know, if we have that background and then um, things are getting kind of acutely worse, I think it's really hard because everybody's really struggling. So, you know, like I think... Um, I always think about the the kvetching circles. So I don't know if you guys have heard of this concept of like, you can only complain to people who are further away from the event than you are, right? So if like your mom dies, then you can complain to your 
um, cousin, but and your cousin can complain to her friend, but like your cousin can't complain to you. And it feels like with the pandemic, like we're all sort of like in the circle, but like not as close to the circle as somebody else. And it feels like that in practice. And I, I think it's sort of worsened in some sense that kind of dismissiveness sometimes that we bring to each other in our different experiences of, you know, saying like, oh, well, I went through this exact same thing as you did. I know exactly what it's like. And you really, you really don't. Um, so I have to say, you know, I, I try to do interviews all the time with people who are at different stages about, you know, kind of what they're going through. Um, and I did an interview with a medical student, which was really eye opening to me about how terrible and isolating the experience of being a medical student in a city that was really hard hit in the pandemic was, uh, you know, because you couldn't be around friends or family. Um, uh, this particular uh, person uh, was immunosuppressed and wanted to, you know, make sure that they had a mask on all the time and their co-students were not always doing that, you know, and then they were constantly being told like, well, you guys are going to do so great on step one because, you know, you have all this extra time to study. And it's like, you know, I'm afraid for my life. I'm afraid for my parents' lives. Um, and, you know, I'm not getting that in, in-person in experience. Um, you know, can't, I don't feel comfortable going to parties. I don't feel comfortable going to bars. There's like really no way to kind of decompress. And then there's, you know, much less in-person teaching of the physical exam or being around patients. So in some ways you feel like your education is, is affected, you know? And then of course for, you know, residents, especially residents who are, you know, third years now and we're interns in the beginning of the crisis, um, you know, you think of like March, March of their intern year was a time when maybe they finally kind of start to feel like they know what they're doing. Like that big spike in depression is sort of calming down. And then, you know, uh, the, you know, the whole world blows up and they're on the front front lines. And, you know, in some places they were really expected to be the one to be in the room touching the patient, whereas sometimes the attendings didn't go in. And I think that made people feel a little expendable. Um, And so I think, there is going to be some some mistrust that isn't going to go away. It is going to be long lasting. And then for us and who are in practice, you know, we were getting different messages from our institutions. Sometimes we didn't always have the PPE that we needed, and you know, some of us had actually salary cuts in the pandemic. While you know, people in the public had these conspiracy theories about how we're making so much more money, and like they're economically suffering. So I sort of, you know, I I understand the you know, where that could come from. Uh, but, you know, you feel in some ways like kind of betrayed uh, by the the people that you're you're here to serve. So I think, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of things ongoing to unpack. And, um, you know, I'm sorry, Eri, you had said like how to think of this in a hopeful way. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, this is a really big uh, like national and international trauma and is ongoing. Um, and then we have on the background of it, like all these, you know, mental health challenges that are that are part of our profession. I mean, I'm I'm really grateful to have been able to be of service, and I am really grateful to you know work with incredible people. But I, I'm also able to hold space for people being angry about the situation because I really do want things to change. And I think anger is a really undervalued um, mechanism for things to change. So um, I think that's, I think it's okay for people to still be angry about um, some things that happened. Well, I was going to say, Elizabeth, I feel like you haven't bummed me out or I don't want to speak for everyone. I think it's been a really hopeful conversation. I also think that you should maybe kind of dub the Elizabeth effect where people kind of talk to you and they maybe feel comfortable and are able to be vulnerable. And it's like that anecdote you shared where somebody's like, no, I've never been depressed. And they talk to you and they're like, it's happened so often. Like you have made me you know, realize that about myself. And I just wonder kind of um, that introspection that I think you are 
allowing us to do, or maybe even, you know, COVID has allowed us to do to spend some time with uh, our thoughts, which I personally try to avoid as much as possible, but has happened occasionally. And I just, I wonder with that um, kind of introspection that you allow, like, are there, or you provide, are there other ways that we can kind of orient ourselves, you know, the people we work with, the people we kind of, whose development into clinicians we support, are there ways that we can kind of help them do that same introspection, that Elizabeth effect that you kind of are uh, helping us to identify maybe depression, burnout, other entities, moral injury. We haven't really talked about that as much, but kind of what are those ways that we can support and help people identify that in themselves? Yeah, well, I will um, I, I will go back to something Chantal Young said. I really think people should listen to that episode. <laughs> um, uh, and, I, and I will say I sought care from a couple of doctors and it was not a good fit. And I saw a psychologist um, and I really liked that she understood kind of my training, but she also didn't normalize things that I didn't want to be normalized. So any, if anybody is, you know, seeking care, any personally, that that helped me. But um, I, she talked about transference and counter-transference in terms of how we're talking to our colleagues and, you know, things that, that come out in that way. And I think that's a, a thing that's really undertaught, um, especially in internal medicine, given how much Attachment is a is an important part of our job. Our patients feeling attached to us and us feeling attached to our patients. We're not really taught how to manage that at all. So she talked about, you know, allow yourself to articulate how this patient makes you feel, you know, or how this colleague makes you feel, right? So if you're working with a, a resident and you're very frustrated every time you work with that resident, like let yourself articulate that, you know, I mean, I don't mean gossip, but like, you know, think through like, why is this person frustrating me or why is this person seem to escalate you know what's going on or or like they'll say something that somebody else will say and it won't annoy me in the same way like what is going on with our dynamic why are they pulling that out of me and if they're pulling it out of me are they pulling it out of other people because they're you know struggling to communicate or they're struggling to find their place you know and then with patients, you know, I work with patients uh, with substance use disorders, like really not trying to fix it allows me to not get frustrated with them and to sit with them and the trauma that they've experienced often at the hands of uh, healthcare workers who don't feel like they can help them and therefore, you know, you know, kind of push them away. So yeah, I know that's like a little it's a little big, but you know, so that's so that's as an individual. And then um, I would say writing is really helpful, even if you don't publish anything, just having a, a regular writing practice to sort of reflect on the day to day is really important. Maintaining relationships outside of medicine. So again, like, you know, if you're around everybody who is experiencing the same thing, we can end up normalizing something that shouldn't be normalized. Um, so getting that feedback from friends and family of like, you know, you don't seem okay is important. And I think sometimes we can be dismissive of that. But I, I think that's a really important thing to sort of ground us in reality. And some programs do regular debriefing, um, like a monthly debriefing um, that's facilitated by a mental health expert. I think that that's really important. It's important that that person not be uh, somebody in a position of power or somebody who's evaluating them because then it can be like a threatening experience. But in places where it's set up thoughtfully, I think people get a lot out of it. So those are some practices that I've seen, you know, for individuals or for institutions that have been helpful. And then in practice, you know, like we're often incredibly isolated, especially in primary care. You're kind of like doing it alone. Even if you have a team, it does feel like it, it kind of all falls on you at the end of the day. So I think seeking out other primary care doctors um, and, you know, finding ways to kind of talk through different difficult cases or, or colleagues who are willing to do that or even setting something up within your practice to kind of go through difficult cases is, you know, something that can be really sustaining. Along those lines, do you have like a toolbox of the four essential things that you think residency programs or, or training programs should have right off the bat from orientation onwards for their trainees? Um, I love that. I love that framing. I have two, but I'll think of the, <laughs> the other three and four after we get off this call. Two is great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So I'll, I'll start with two. Um, the two essentials is I think that residents should have opt out therapy for all their residents. Um, I've 
seen uh, some places that that do this. I think it makes a huge difference. I think increasingly, I'm thinking that this probably shouldn't be through employee assistance because even if you know things are set up pretty well, frankly, residents do not trust employee assistance, um, and they may have had a bad experience in the past or have a colleague who's had a bad experience. I've certainly heard of some cases, but again, it's like the they need something outside of the institution. But if they have the opt-out therapy session, then they can, uh, that's just scheduled, they don't need to schedule it themselves or ask for time off, um, then they can continue if they need to. And if they don't feel like they need to continue at that time, they at least have a face to the name and hopefully somebody they can trust to immediately reach out in a crisis. So a couple of places are doing that. I think it's it's a pretty low cost intervention. And given the prevalence of depression and suicide in our profession, I think that's sort of the first step. The other thing is, I think we should have time set aside for interns to schedule primary care appointments when they first start. I can't believe how many residents don't have a primary care doctor by the time they graduate. Um, you know, and you know, things are not just physically demanding, or not just men- uh, you know, mentally or emotionally demanding. They're physically demanding. Um, you know, and we get sick sometimes, right? So, uh, you know, I think that that's um, that's really important. Um, you know, maybe a little bit less well developed, but I do think that the um, I do think that the the debriefing sessions could be an important part um, of residency programs as well. But, um, you know, again, all of this, you have to think through the privacy concerns. You have to think through, frankly, the fact that some of us react to all of vulnerability in a very dysfunctional way because of how we've been trained and treated ourselves. So you have to be careful with how this is going to be used in different places. And kind of building off of that anger that you were highlighting before that, you know, these just these statistics are unacceptable and things don't need to continue that way. What kind of national things do you think are helpful in terms of what can we push for? What would sort of your ideal system look like? Yeah. Well, thank thank you for asking me. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I do think about that as well. And I guess I, I want to just pull back and say, you know, when you're like, when you're experiencing these things and, um, you know, we're talking about these small changes like opt-out therapy or primary care or whatever, you know, you're like, well, yeah, but I'm sick because my job doesn't let me sleep and doesn't let me get access to good food and doesn't let me see my family or, you know, doesn't give me like adequate maternity leave or whatever. Um, And those are really important things. And there are things that we can do to immediately make things better and to at least help people in crisis. So I don't see those in opposition. I'm not a person who wants to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that's why I do, you know, primary care in a van on the west side of Chicago, which I wouldn't be able to do if I had that mindset. But I think in terms of like bigger picture, you know, we're we're so accustomed as humans, I guess, to um, consider what we have as being the the best it can be with minor tweaks. And I would love for us to start having a conversation, you know, about, you know, what kind of doctors do we want to produce? What kind of doctors do we want working in America? And I have to say, I find clinicians in general to be not very mentally flexible, not very willing to express vulnerability, and struggling a lot with empathy, either, you know, having appropriate boundaries or, you know, feeling like when they did express empathy, that it was too painful of an experience. So they kind of shut down, right? Um, But what kind of doctor do I want to see? You know, I want to see a doctor who is willing to say, I don't know. I want a doctor who's physically and mentally well um, and is able to, like, call out when they're sick um, and not come in when they shouldn't be seeing people. I want a doctor who's looking things up and changing their practice as time goes on. And I want a doctor who cares about whether or not, you know, I feel seen and supported. And I personally don't think that we're training people to be that way. And I don't think we're setting up our practices to allow that kind of of practice. So in that sense, you know, I, you're going to go, if that's what you want, then humiliation as a tool of education should be eliminated. We shouldn't be emphasizing so much memorization. We should be emphasizing, you know, how you work through new information, right? We should be emphasizing how do you manage empathy? Don't just display empathy, but how do you manage it? How do you 
maintain um, your emotional well-being while allowing yourself to be emotionally present with the patient. And I, I can't really say I got any guidance on that. And that's been such an essential part of practice for me and, and maintaining my love of practice as well. Wow. We have covered so much in so little time, um, Elizabeth, you're incredible. One thing that I think maybe we could spend just a little bit of time on before we transition to kind of wrapping up the case is something that we didn't talk as much about in the first episode with um, Dr. Chantal Young, but uh, this is around kind of the differential impacts of race, uh, sexual identity, culture, and gender uh, around the conversation that we're having regarding both mental health and kind of the experiences of trauma for healthcare professionals in general, uh, especially those who are not white, cisgendered, and uh, have other identities that increase their risk of um, aggressions. And so I just wonder, Elizabeth, if you could maybe touch on that, uh, how we can be mindful of these identities, how can we kind of engage the systems in which we work to support um, as opposed to kind of further traumatize? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that's really important to consider. You know, the, the program I'm in does a really great job of recruiting residents from diverse backgrounds because that's, you know, our patients are very diverse. And I think that's great. But I think, you know, we can also think about how the burdens are then are going to be sort of impact them differently, right? So, you know, ongoing conversations about anti-Black racism are going to affect uh, Black residents in a more personal way um, than they are going to affect white residents or non-Black residents. I think, you know, when we think about even something as simple as feedback, you know, I've gotten a lot of I guess I, I, it's not really simple. It's complicated, but I've gotten, you know, a lot of, you know, black women and friends of mine have been told that they're being too loud. Um, and I wonder, you know, how much uh, coaching did the people giving feedback get on, you know, giving comments to people that can be, you know, personal and racist? Um, I think well, probably not a whole lot, you know, and then if you like, we could we could adopt you know strategies that companies have used, and I but I I know we're sort of like resistant to outside <laughs> ideas, but you know a lot of companies they will go through all the feedback that an individual is going to get before they give it to that individual and make sure that there isn't you know something incredibly you know sexist or racist in there, um, and if there is, they talk to the person who wrote it first. They don't just give it unfiltered to that individual. So I, I'm sure that there are some programs that do a, a good job with that. But I think you know it's not sort of universal that we're getting trained on how to how to give appropriate feedback that's focused on behavior and not personality or appearance, uh, uh, you know, or mannerisms or whatnot. Um, and that differentially affects. Uh, people who are underrepresented minorities and women. And then the, the like the bigger thing is is that, you know, like we keep talking about your experience is not universal. So I, I, I remember very distinctly, um, let's just say like a man who had been in practice for a long time came in and uh, walked up to a group of young women residents, including myself, and said, you know, one day you're going to come home and your wife is going to be mad because you're late and your dinner will be cold on the table. But like, you just got to, you got to power through and you got to do what's right for your patient. And I was like, you mean my dead plants and my frozen dinner? I'm not really sure like how this is supposed to relate to me, but um, you're like, that could you know, be farther it, right now. But I have no <laughs> connection to any of that. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's like, you know, you want to reach out to people, but you do have to really keep in mind that their that their particular experiences and challenges are different um, and that there's a lot of racism baked into the way that we treat patients and the way that we treat colleagues. And their proof is in the underrepresent the continued underrepresentation of people who are not white in practice. Um, and that plays out in a million different ways um, in, in training and education. So to jump back to the case for a moment, we we speak with our, our intern. They're extremely grateful that we reached out to them. And she has, in fact, been feeling a bit down the last few weeks. She says, kind of as you alluded to, Dr. Porman, um, she hasn't reached out to anyone because she's worried about seeking care. And she's worried about how this will look to the program and in the future. She doesn't know whether anyone will be able to find out about it. And and this this sounds to us like a classic story. We've heard it multiple times. And so just to be explicit from a kind of licensing perspective, what are the barriers to physicians seeking or receiving treatment? And kind of what are the perceptions around those? Yeah, so... 
this is, I think this is like the fundamental question, right? And it's the thing that makes it so hard to actually do anything about mental illness in practice because we're so afraid of the ramifications and we have this legalized discrimination against us for seeking care. So um, the licensing uh, depends on the state. Each state has kind of their own questions. The majority of the states do ask um, in a way that is sort of discriminatory about um, your history of mental health. But most of them also have this sort of caveat about current impairment. So we have, you know, questions that are, are ranging from, have you been treated for any mental health condition in the last five years? Kind of hard to get around that. You know, I would probably have to say yes. That's not most states. Most states will ask, do you have a current, you know, mental health or physical uh, diagnosis that impairs your ability to, to practice medicine safely? And then they'll add like a hundred other words that are incredibly confusing. <laughs> and then uh, you get to the end and you think, well, I did go to therapy. So do I have to say yes? Or like I took like a month off because I was depressed or I took a month off because my dad died. Do I have to disclose that? And I think there's a lot of misinformation. I will say, um, as far as I understand, Unless you're in some kind of mandated treatment, you do not have to disclose uh, your active mental health if it's if the question is asking about current impairment. If the question is not asking about current impairment, it's just asking about history, that's a little trickier. And for the most part, if you say yes, they're just going to ask for more documentation. I know that some people advocate saying no. And I mean, that's a personal decision you have to make. But I'm not aware of anybody that was denied a license simply for saying yes and providing some documentation. And then later on, if you said no and you got into, you know, some kind of trouble at work and you had to go through treatment um, and the board found out that you lied, that could be an issue. Um, so in general, I, I I say that, you know, only disclose what you have to, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend lying on the application and just know that you are probably going to get your license still. You know, that being said, why are we asking these questions? Uh, the people who are truly dangerous are generally unaware that they have any issue. Um, they may be, you know, you know, drinking to excess. And that's that's also incredibly common in our field, probably uh, one in five women physicians qualify or screen, I guess I should say screen positive for having an alcohol use disorder. Uh, but probably one in five women physicians is not aware that they screen positive for having an alcohol use disorder. Right. And so like it's the it's the people who are unaware that are dangerous. And so I think the the boards ask these questions to sort of you know, I, I will say in a generous way, maybe they, they think that this is going to protect people, but there's really no evidence that it does. And I think it actually makes our patients less safe. So there's a lot of movement to get rid of these questions. And I'm on a couple of committees trying to do that, or at least to make it clear that this is just to be about current impairment and asking about past treatment is actually a violation of the ADA. But it's not just the licensing questions, unfortunately. There's also the credentialing questions at your institution. You know, I I will say in that case, I generally have not been asked about personally my history of mental health issues, but I have had uh, people who or my peer references were asked if I had a history of any mental health treatment. And I have coached people who are writing the peer references to say that they declined to answer the question. Um, because, you know, because I've been public and, uh, you know, I've done public advocacy, I can't really say no, like you can Google me, um, and, you know, find that I have like seen a therapist. Oh my God. Um, but I also think it's none of their business. Um, and generally that's been okay for me. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, these are these are things that are are difficult. Um, and I will say, you know, most institutions are not, like not very nimble. They're not like the CIA or something. The boards are volunteer organizations with no money, no funding, no time. Um, it It's not like they're they don't have subpoena power over your your medical records. So this idea that you like have to go to another state and pay cash. And I um, I think that that's a that's that's a. A, a totally divorced uh, from reality. But I do, I do think like, you know, it's it's the perfect storm of this question that I don't understand the point of it and the stigma in medicine. And it creates this kind of explosive, you know, paranoia um, within our community. Yeah. On that note, I 
can't recall, but I don't think that my training program addressed the kind of licensing component or any of these kind of uh, per, uh, perspective versus reality uh, or perception versus reality in my residency training or orientation. Do you think that's something that we could easily work into orientation or orienting? How would we do that if we did that? So here's here's the problem. In residency and in medical school, sometimes the person that you're seeing for help or the first point of contact is somebody who also evaluates you or is somebody who works closely with people who evaluate you. And sometimes that person is unable to maintain your privacy or is not acting appropriately in terms of maintaining your privacy. Um, and there I've, you know, collected many horror stories of people that have had a difficult time with that. So I can't necessarily say that that's going to be a safe thing to do. Once you experience that, it does not matter how good the resources are that like your next employer has, you will never trust it again. So I think that that's, that is very, very tough. So that's why I generally advocate we need outside institutions and groups or therapists who don't work for the university to provide uh, that kind of treatment because that sort of psychological trauma and fear, you just, you're never going to overcome it um, once people are out in the world and in practice. In terms of the licensing, I absolutely think that residency programs should be walking through the licensing questions and coaching people on what it means and how to answer it. Um, but the fact that we have to do that means that the questions are badly written and probably unnecessary. And do you have any resources for uh, educators or for residents who are interested in advocating for change? Any kind of toolkits or places that we can look for more information online? Yeah, their ACP put out a really great um, resident well-being uh, toolkit. It's called the Resident Wellbeing. It's in the Resident Wellbeing Learning Hub. It's the Physician Wellbeing and Professional Film Fulfillment. Um, curriculum. Um, and then the Emotional Wellbeing Support Hub is uh, this site that the Wellbeing Committee um, is uh, has put together and is, you know, constantly updating and making sure that the resources are still active. And they have, you know, all kinds of places where you can get, you know, low cost, low barrier therapy with and without insurance. So I think like that that's a great place. And we're, you know, trying to accumulate even more resources. I'm hoping to make a video soon, although I mean, I don't know if you guys have made video content. It is very complicated and I, I don't want it to look outdated in like a month. Um, but, uh, you know, want to make a video coaching people about specifically the issue about licensing questions um, and how to answer those and credentialing questions and how to answer those. Because I think that that's a that's a big issue, even if we do successfully change the licensing questions, it will still be interpreted in a, in a particular way that people are still going to be afraid to access care. I can't wait to see that video. That's going to be amazing. It will never go out of date, Elizabeth. Well, hopefully, I mean, unless they get rid of the questions, which would be fantastic. <laughs> um, well, this has been incredible. Yes. Uh, I just wonder maybe if you could share your main take-home points for our listeners um, based on what we just discussed. Oh, man, you want me to summarize? Okay. Yeah, um, you got it. Uh, my main, I guess my main take home point is that mental disorders, mental disorders and emotional distress writ large without necessarily being a disorder are a very common part of training medical school and practice. And to be a great clinician is to be somewhat introspective about how your job is affecting you, how your interactions with patients are affecting you, you know, introspective about the, the, the traumas that your patients are experiencing. And I think, you know, to kind of get through a system that doesn't really value us as human beings all the time, we do shut that part of ourselves down and we're afraid to engage it. I mean, look how we reacted when we, when we asked very sincerely, how are you? right? That's so much fear and walls built up around interrogating how we're doing. But I think that that's a really important part of being present with our patients and also being able to listen to them when they talk about the experience of seeking care and how that can sometimes be traumatic. So I would say that having this talk, seeking help, you know, being willing to 
really look inside and be vulnerable with our colleagues is a really important professional competency. I will say sometimes you have to be a little bit choosy about who you are vulnerable with, um, that is somebody who's going to be able to receive that. And if you want to be that person that people open up to, you have to be thoughtful about making that uh, safe for them as well. And then in a larger context, you know, we could have uh, more humane training, we could have more humane practice. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to advocate for that because that's really important for our patients as well, that uh, we're healthy and that we're, you know, if we're not, then that's a sign that the system is not really working that well for us or our patients. Wonderful summary. Thank you. And and such an important conversation. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to plug, anything that you're working on or anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah. So the um, Institute for Health Improvement is working on getting rid of uh, those very stigmatizing licensing questions. And there is also, um, I just found out about another group called impactinhealthcare.org, which I'm going to look into, which is also trying to get rid of those licensing questions. So, you know, while there's, you know, maybe many different ways to attack this, I think that I like having this like focused goal that we have of changing those licensing questions by the next calendar year um, so that that's not an ongoing barrier that we have. And then we can start uh, to attack other parts of this problem, too. So, yeah, people can join that if they want to. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. So that was such a great episode. I think um, just so many pearls that Dr. Porman shared with us and so many things that I'm going to keep considering in this bigger conversation about mental health. One thing that I really liked that she focused on was trying to take a step back from thinking about training in the bigger picture and think about how we can actually use it to create the providers that we're looking for in today's world and training physicians who are empathetic, who are flexible, who are caring. And I think really focusing on that as the end goal rather than getting stuck in this model of this is how we've always done it and this is how we're going to continue to do it can help push us as educators to really try to think about changing the system to support us all better. Yeah, I, I think that that's such a good point. I was reflecting just now on the same same piece of the conversation we had today, and specifically how she mentioned that actually a tool for getting into these conversations with trainees, with colleagues, is just being open in your interactions and in your like thought process and sharing your thought process around like relationships. And, and when there's tension in relationships, acknowledging that there's tension to yourself to to others in a very like non-confrontational just kind of productive way and that applies to physician patient relationships that applies to colleague relationships and kind of by doing that and being open about the fact that i i felt a little bit of a little bit of discomfort with this conversation why was that that is actually in and of itself a way to make the conversations about mental health more uh more accessible to kind of everyone I agree. I feel like Elizabeth really taught us the foundation of relationship-centered communication and how that plays a role in just this whole conversation around clinician and health professionals, uh, mental health. I also love that she gave us a toolkit and kind of thinking for, specifically for residency programs and how to support trainees around the having opt-out therapy, having kind of time and set up uh, with a primary care physician from the very beginning. Just these really practical steps that training programs can take to say, yeah, we support mental health and this is how we're going to do it. And so just really kind of galvanized by Dr. Portman to change the, the culture and the landscape here. Wonderful. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Nora Toronto, and to Dr. Beth Garbs Garbatelli for helping on the production side of the episode. Also, thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Also, thanks to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. 
And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Mmm, yummy. It finally came out, you guys. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Molly Hoyboy. And I'm Dr. Nora Toronto. See y'all later. front and the innovative changes wow what accent is that you guys i am so sorry this is from like six lack of six hours (laughs) (laughs) my god claire's probably dying inside i'm so sorry just delete all of this okay okay we're all good Mm, yummy okay